Well, I want to welcome you today. Uh, my name is Paul Mumaw, and I'm the lead pastor uh, here at Genesis. And again, uh, we love having you, uh, especially if this is your first time. And uh, we're continuing, we're restarting, getting going again in this series uh, that we're into all year long here at Genesis, a series called The Story Today. And I've got to be real honest to you, with you that there are portions of the story uh, that we've touched so far. There are portions of the story that we're going to get into this spring and especially a little bit deeper into the Old Testament this summer where the challenge of trying to discern and deliver a message in 30 minutes or less on a chapter that covers so many pages and so many stories is so immense. It's so enormous. And and I've just got to be honest with you and kind of tell you that that's what I ran up against in preparing uh, for this week. And so as we start today, um, I really want you to know from the beginning as we continue in the story that... um, We serve a God that we have a God in this world who loves to forgive. And uh, it's not a choice that he makes. uh, It's who he is. Uh, Forgiveness is our God. And that's important to remember, uh, even as Christians, because when you know or when you realize at certain times in your life that you've turned your back on God and that you've walked away from him, uh, we have a God who is always waiting and who is always ready to bring you back. And um, that might be everything that you need to know and embrace for your own life on a day like today. Will you pray with me as we get started? God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you how it guides us and it directs us, and it is truth and it is perfect. And there are portions of that word that we don't always understand. And even as we get in today, I know that there are just some some complicated kind of um, truth here that we, we just, I, I just know we really need you and we, we need to open our hearts so that we can see it and we can embrace it and really see that you are a God who loves us and that you are a God who desires to forgive us and, and repentance is the key uh, and it is turning back to you. And so I pray that you would open up our hearts today to see the truth and, and that you would lead us down those paths that you want to take us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, what is the first image that comes to your mind when you think of the word judge? Right? If you're a, if you're a TV fan, if you watch a lot of reality TV, maybe when you think of the word judge, you think of this guy, you think of Simon Cowell, right? I mean, you've been following American Idol since its beginning and all of these years and maybe now over to the X Factor. And so when you think of the word judge, maybe you think of Simon Cowell. But uh, maybe when you think of the word judge, you go a little more traditional uh, and you think of something like these men and women. You think of the Supreme Court justices. And we know that they've been spending a lot of time in the news. And especially as we get into the summer, we're going to hear a lot more uh, from our Supreme Court justices. But how many of you ever or have watched any of the uh, court TV shows. Uh, any fans of court TV here? We've got some. And maybe if you go way back, you might go to somebody like Judge Wapner and, and People's Court. Uh, but if you're a little more relevant, uh, if you watch some court TV today, maybe when you think of court TV, you think of Judge Judy, right? All right. Somewhere in between Simon Cowell and the Supreme Court justices, would you say? I mean, is that, is that a fair uh, comparison? Well, she's maybe somewhere in between the two of those. I, I've got to tell you, I've never seen more than just a couple of minutes of Judge Judy, uh, and it's kind of entertaining, but I got to be real honest, it, it always leaves me wondering, I mean, what possesses people to go on a show like hers? I mean, is there really that much money in it that you would go and allow yourself to be publicly humiliated, ripped to shreds, you know, by this particular woman? 
Um, when we think of judges, we, we could come up with all sorts of different examples of, of judges. And maybe you've, uh, maybe you've spent some time in front of a traffic court judge, maybe uh, more than you like. Some of you are getting an elbow uh, to the side right at the moment. And so when you think about judge, you think about someone who tells you when you've done something wrong and you wait as they hand down the sentence or they hand down the judgment. Uh, because judges like these, because of them, uh, you know, most of us are afraid when we think about standing before the judge. Because you don't want to go in front of a judge like that. Well, again, we're in this series called The Story. And uh, we're reading the Bible together in 2013 uh, using a resource called The Story. And many of our connection groups are talking about it. And we're talking about it here on, on Sundays. And we're in Chapter 8 of The Story today. We're resuming with Chapter 8. And I would just encourage you to read Chapter 9 for next week. If you've got a copy of The Story, uh, you know Chapter 9. If you don't have a copy of The Story, if you're using your own Bible, there's a, there, there's a guide in your worship program that will show you the next chapters uh, to read for this next week. Just jump in. Uh, jump in with us and, and read for yourself. But, but today, we've come to a period of about 330 years in the Old Testament, uh, this period of time that scholars refer to as the period of the judge. All right, And it's a significant section in the Old Testament. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, you know there's even a book in the Old Testament, in the Bible, that, that refers to these judges. It's called the Book of Judges. And a judge in the Old Testament, as we're going to discover today, is a lot different than the judge that we think of, the examples of judges that we looked at uh, just a moment ago. And while there are some similarities in the two, uh, Old Testament judges didn't put people in jail. In fact, they were more responsible for helping people get out of jail of getting out of the circumstances that they had fallen into. And uh, before we dive in specifically to this chapter, uh, let's do a brief rewind to kind of get caught up to where we are in this point of the story. Uh, the Israelites today, as we're going to see, now occupy the land, the promised land that God had promised to Abraham 700 years before. And a lot has happened during that time. And we've covered some of that, and you've been reading some about, uh, about that. Uh, but God used people like Joseph. Uh, he used Joseph and put him into power and leadership uh, in Egypt to help establish a temporary home there for his people during a really difficult season uh, in Egypt. And, and once welcomed visitors there, the Israelites, God's people, were forced into slavery, but God's not going to tolerate that for very long until one day he calls a man by the name of Moses. And Moses leads God's people out of slavery in Egypt uh, through the Red Sea and into the wilderness, a, a long season of wandering in the wilderness, and, and then Moses died. And after that, God raised up a capable leader in Joshua. And Joshua is the one who's going to finally lead the people out of the wilderness, and, and he helped them conquer the land that God had promised to the people of Israel 700 years before. Now, once at home in the land, God really set his people up to succeed. I mean, they're ready to go. I mean, they're no longer foreigners and strangers. They're no longer wandering. Uh, they've got their, their own place uh, they're not in slavery anymore, and, and God's presence was with them in the tabernacle. Uh, forgiveness was available to them through the sacrificial system administered by the Levites. Uh, God's law, uh, particularly the Ten Commandments, instructed them on how they should relate to God and how they should treat each other. And, and so they're ready to go. I mean, God has them exactly where he is intended for them to be. And if they just follow the path, if they just follow the plan that God has laid out for them, God is going to be their God and he is going to bless them in ways that they could never possibly imagine or dream. But they didn't choose God's way. 
I mean, even after all that, they didn't choose God's path for their life because of one fundamental problem, a problem that goes all the way back to the very beginning of the story, to the book of Genesis, chapter 3, and that problem is sin. I mean, sin's the problem. You know, sin still reigns in the heart of God's people. It has power. Uh, It's not going away. It's been a problem for God's people since the Garden of Eden, and it's a problem that we're going to see today in the book of Judges. And like it or not, it's still my problem, and it's still your problem here today. And if you're new to all this, if you're new to Genesis today, maybe you haven't been in church in a really long time, I mean, you might be wondering to yourself, well, well, what exactly is sin? I mean, how would you define something like sin? I think sin's simply this. It's choosing anything over Jesus. Uh, it's building your identity or your life around something other than Jesus Christ. And sin's my problem. Uh, it's your problem. It's a problem for Christians. It's the Problem for these Israelites now at home in the promised land. Now, we looked at chapter 7 uh, back before Easter, before taking a couple of weeks off. And as we discovered in chapter 7, things were going pretty well for the Israelites under Joshua's leadership. I mean, God provided. There was lots of prosperity. But unfortunately for the Israelites, they made two major mistakes after the death of Joshua. First, uh, as they entered into the promised land, as they conquered the land, they didn't drive out the pagans as God had commanded them to do. And we see this in Judges chapter 1, verse 28. It says, when Israel became strong, I mean, when they entered the land and they're conquering the land, they're taking it for themselves as God had promised. It says, they pressed the Canaanites who were inhabiting the land at the time into forced labor, but never completely drove them out. And so that was their first mistake. But their second mistake was that they didn't keep God as their number one priority And because of this, they didn't pass the promises of God onto the future generations. Judges chapter 2, verse 10, the second half of that verse says, Another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And what a terrible mistake then. And what a terrible mistake uh, to make today. I mean, that is to fail to teach your children about the importance of a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, parents hear me when I say this. It's great and all to involve your kids in sports and travel teams and things like dance and to help them excel at school and maybe they get something like a scholarship one day. But what a tragedy to give your kids everything and yet overlook the importance of helping your kids uh, to discover and grow in their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Your greatest responsibility as a parent is to teach your children about Jesus and it should be your first priority. And that means that it's not my responsibility for you. It's not the responsibility of our Gen Kids ministry. It's not the responsibility of our student ministry. And, and we can help you in this. I mean, we can help equip you in something like this. But it's your responsibility first. I, I had a family come up after the service last Sunday, and they came up with their daughter, and they just had to tell me, she just wanted to tell me that just a few minutes before, that their daughter had invited Jesus Christ into her life to be her Lord and Savior. And it was so cool, as this little girl was so proud, but I'll tell you who was really proud. Mom and Dad were really proud. And I, I say, go, way to go, Mom and Dad. As a mom, as a dad, as a parent, as a caretaker of a child, I mean, your primary responsibility is to teach them about the love of God and a relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, even grandmas and grandpas, you have a role in this too to pour into your kids to make sure they see the love of God and how they can embrace the love of God for their life and how that will change everything. Well, Israel made a couple of grave mistakes. And because of these, they're finding themselves in a big mess in their new home. And they're not on the right path. 
uh, sin for them has resulted in these devastating consequences. And it's in this mess that God's going to raise up a series of judges to lead the people, to deal with their sin, and to assist them in finally getting out of jail. And so I I just got to say that if you want to understand chapter 8 for yourself or the book of Judges in this 300-year period, it's important for you to understand a pattern. Uh, We see this cyclical pattern over and over again in the book of Judges, and and it's one that maybe you noticed to some degree if you were reading for yourself. Uh, It's a cycle that's repeated over and over again all uh, in Israel all throughout chapter 8 in the story. And I want to just show you how this works. Um, We've got an example of this for you on the screen. We're going to call this first stage in this cyclical pattern in Judges disobedience. And in your notes, you can just label it as disobedience. And and when you see this cycle repeated over and over again in the chapter, the most common phrase that you read in Judges is this one. It says that they, that is the people of Israel, God's people, did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's disobedience. You know, they sinned. They fell into this pattern of sin. And and for the Israelites, their disobedience was found in worshiping other gods, which was a direct violation of the first commandment. And when you disobey and when you do something like that, there are all sorts of evil that can emerge from something like that. I mean, even in your walk with God today. I mean, it's so true for us today that when you allow anything else other than God, something other than God to take first priority over your relationship with Jesus Christ, you're just opening the door for all kinds of evil and all kinds of sin to enter in and to take hold in your life. Uh, There was a famous missionary that lived some time back, a guy by the name of Jim Elliott, And he summed up the Christian experience for someone one time saying this, that the point of the Christian life is this. He said, love God and then do whatever you want. Isn't that great? He says, hey, here's what you need to know. Love God and do whatever you want. Now, I read something like that and I say it's great and all, but then I kind of sort of look at it and I want to ask all sorts of questions. Like, are you seriously? Like, I mean, is is it that easy? I mean, is is it true? Is it a little misleading? But think about it. I mean, if you make Jesus Christ your first priority in your life and you give it all you have, I mean, if you set the course and the direction of your life on loving God and living for him, God is going to radically transform your heart in ways that you will never possibly imagine. I mean, the more you pursue him, the more he's going to change the way you think and the way that you desire certain things. And he's going to change the way that you serve and he's going to change the way that you love people in and around your life. That's why Jim Elliott was able to say, love God, And do whatever you want. But if God becomes the second priority in your life, or he becomes the third priority in your life, or he just becomes some sort of option or something that you do on Sundays, well, that's when the trouble creeps in, and that's what's happening for Israel. I mean, they removed God from the center and allowed him to be replaced by these other things, and that disobedience led to significant, the second phase's consequences. And we see that in Judges. I mean, just over and over again, the people, they chose their own path. And, and as a result, God removed his protection over them, which allowed Israel's enemies to have way with, with God's people. I mean, God promised to bless the people as long as they were committed to following him. But now, after their repeated sin and after their disobedience and choosing their own ways and turning their back on God, God removes his hand of protection so that others could come in and oppress the Israelites once again proving that disobedience always leads to consequences. Again, you can see this pattern for yourself. At least six times in the book of Judges, the people disobey, consequences follow, 
And each time the Israelites are forced to, to face the torment and oppression from a different enemy, enemies like the Moabites and the Midianites and others, disobedience is always followed by consequences. And the pain of those consequences for Israel eventually leads to repentance. And in each of these six situations in Judges, it gets so bad that the people cry out to God. They cry out to the Lord. And that's just another phrase used over and over again in this book, that the Israelites, they hit rock bottom, but then they turn back to God. And this is where the judge comes in. And up until this point in the book, I mean, there has been no presence. Up until this point in the history of Israel, there has been no presence of a judge in Israel. But at the point of repentance, the judge emerges, and the judge is going to lead God's people through the experience of repentance and back to the place of freedom. Because freedom is what God desires for his people in Israel, and freedom is what God desires for people like you and me today. But this last stage it can really and truly only come through our repentance. And more often than we like, more often than we might realize, this is how life works for us too. This pattern, this cycle. I mean, this is how we live. I mean, think about how often are we guilty? How often are you guilty? Am I guilty of choosing your path over God's? Because, I mean, we want to do it our way. And we want to make our own choices. I mean, there are certain things that we desire, and so we make these choices. We make these selfish choices by turning our back on God, and then we get ourselves into trouble. And and many times we're forced to face the sorrow that accompanies those troubles. And what we desire all along the way is we desire freedom, and we desire deliverance from those pains and from those circumstances. I mean, we want to get things back to the way that they ought to be and the way that they should be. But too often... Too often the problem is that we don't see the need for repentance in our life as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And and the way back to God, I mean, the path that he has laid out for us is that freedom can only be found through confession and repentance. It's, It's a habit and a discipline that we ought to seek and that we ought to crave and that we ought to strive for as followers of Jesus Christ. I mean, repentance is a part of the Christian life. You know, because even though my salvation is found in Jesus Christ and I have that confidence and I know that many of you have that confidence, I'm prone to wander. I mean, I'm prone to turn my back on God, even as a follower of Jesus. And so for Israel, uh, God raised up a judge on more than one occasion to help lead the people through repentance and back to freedom. And there's a long list of judges uh, in the book of Judges in chapter 8. And there's some discrepancy in the number, how many there were. But there were at least 11 of them, 11 of them that were men and one that was a woman. And the most well-known judges were people like Othniel and Ehud and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson. You've probably heard of some of those. And, and again, they came on the scene in Israel when the Israelites hit rock bottom. I mean, when they were deep into their consequences, you know, from their disobedience. But God heard their cries because he's always listening and he is always waiting for us to return. And in each situation, when they cried out, he raised up a judge to lead the people through a period of repentance and once again back into freedom. Over 300 years, the book of Judges, 330 years of history recovered in this book and one repeating cycle, disobedience, which leads to consequences, which leads to repentance and ultimately leads to freedom. But unfortunately for the Israelites, they just kept going round and round and round again. 
And the stories in the book of Judges are incredible. And, and if you read it for yourself, and I hope you did, and if you haven't, maybe that might be something that you'll tackle this week. I mean, the stories are really great and incredible. And men, I mean, this is a man's book. I mean, it really is. I mean, there, there's some good, you know, man sort of story is in a book like this because over and over again, God's people, they get into this mess and they cry out to God. And so he raises up a judge, uh, someone that we're likely to call a, a hero. And, and while many of these judges, these heroes demonstrated this great character and qualities, they were normal too. In fact, as you get to know their life, as you see some of their ups and downs, you find that in many ways, you know, these judges just served as one more example of the greater problem for Israel because they weren't perfect. And that's important to realize because while we're quick to give credit to the judge for the rescue of his people, I mean, if you look closely at their stories, it's always God. I mean, God is behind each one. I mean, he is behind the scenes and he's the one that's orchestrating the process of deliverance for his people. Let me just, let me just tell you about a few of the judges. I mean, uh, one, one of the earliest judges that we read about was a woman named Deborah. Uh, again, she was one of the earlier judges in Israel's history, and she was the most unlikely judge. And why? She was a woman. I mean, she was a woman serving and, and living and leading in a man's sort of world. And, and when you think about Deborah, don't think Julia Childs, all right? Don't do that. I mean, when you think about it, think, think Angelina Jolie and like Tomb Raider, you know, kind, kind of woman here. I mean, that's who this, this is. And, and she was a great leader and she was a woman with great influence. And it, and it wasn't common. I mean, it wasn't common for a woman to play such a powerful role in the day in which they were living. But however, God raised up this woman, this leader in Deborah, as his judge, and she led the people through repentance and back to a place of freedom. Now, probably the most famous judge in the story is the judge known as Samson, and he's the one with the long hair. And if you know his story at all, you know he's got a real weak spot with the beautiful ladies. I mean, that's kind of who he is. And maybe you remember his story from Sunday school, which totally had to be edited down to a G-rated uh, sort of a story. Read it for yourself. I mean, it, it, it's a little crazy. But we were taught to believe that all of Samson's strength was in his hair, right? But it wasn't in his hair. Because if you read carefully, you discover that his strength came from the Lord. And it's because of the Lord's Spirit and because the Lord's Spirit was with him. And when he was disobedient, even as a judge, the Spirit of the Lord left him and so did his strength. And then there's the story of Gideon. And uh, Gideon's one of my favorite stories. It's the story of a farmer. Uh, it's the story of a farmer who comes from the lowest tribe and the lowest clan in Israel. And uh, when, when Gideon comes on the scene, the Midianites were ready to totally wipe out and obliterate uh, Israel for once and for all. I mean, they had this massive army. And, and so in a desperate move, Gideon did everything that he could to round up about 32,000 men to serve with him, to fight with him. Keep in mind, Midian's got over 100,000 soldiers and and so Gideon's ready to take on the Midianites with his 32,000 men until one day God intervenes as I get in. You've got to thin your army out. I mean, you've got too many people. I mean, you've, you've got to do some work here. And so that's what he did. And the Bible says that 20,000 men walked away from this army. And so now Gideon's left with an army of 10,000. But then God says, hey, you've still got way too many. And well, through a series of events, Gideon's army is scaled down to 300 people. And why does God limit Gideon's army to 300 people? That's 300 people now versus 130,000. And why, God, why does God do this? I mean, why does he ask Gideon to take such steps? Because God's going to win this battle. And he is more determined than anything to make sure that the only person that gets credit, that gets to take the glory for this victory, is that it'll be him. 
I mean, it's going to be God. And, and so here's how the battle went down. One night, God awoke Gideon. And, and you can read this over on page 110 in the story. But you read how God told Gideon to wake up his 300 men and, and that each of the men were to do this. They were to get things like they were to get a trumpet. Uh, we see the marching band thing again. Uh, we, so they were to get a trumpet. They were to get a, a clay jar. They were to take a torch that was lit and hide it under that jar. And they were to take their swords, even though they weren't going to use those swords. And, and God said this. He says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to approach the Midianite camp. And at just the right moment, I want you to smash those jars and display those uh, torches and, and blow those trumpets. Now, think about it for a second. All right. Um, do you know what it's like to be awakened in the night, you know, by something, you know, you're in a deep sleep? Uh, if you're a parent, you can kind of relate every once in a while, you know, you're kind of in a deep sleep, but you're maybe kind of coming out of it. And have you ever had your eyes closed and maybe with a little kid and you just wonder, somebody's looking at me right now. Like there is somebody standing next to my bed. Anybody relate? You know what that's like? All right. And then you're, you're trying to come through and understand what's going on. Or how about this? It's the middle of the night. You're in a deep sleep and the phone rings. Right. And so you jump up and it's kind of a panic. And I don't know if you're like me, but I'll answer the phone and then pretend like I wasn't asleep. You know, I want to do everything. Well, yeah, you know, and you, but, but you don't know what's going on. And so you, you, it takes a while to kind of get your bearings and to really understand what's happening in the moment. Well, well, that's what's going to happen for the Midianites. I mean, keep in mind, the Midianites, the enemy at this time, they're sleeping. It's the middle of the night. They're multilingual. And, and one night they wake up to the sound of smashing jars and, and shouts and torches and trumpets all around them and all around their camp. And, and so they wake up to all this. They freak out. You know, they're thinking that for every trumpet, it means another battalion or another company of soldiers. And because they're multilingual, they can't communicate with each other. And so they've got mass chaos and they're freaking out on one another. They basically hack each other up. I mean, they self-destruct in the moment. And meanwhile, Gideon just watches from the distance and he's like, God, you're brilliant. I mean, really, I mean, 300 men And on this day, the Israelites rediscovered their freedom and God heard their cries and he raised up a judge in Gideon and he rescued his people once again. You just see it over and over again. At least six times in the book of Judges over a period of 330 years, we discover this cycle of disobedience, which leads to consequences. And eventually they hit rock bottom and in their cries, they repent to God and the judge comes along and the judge leads them back into freedom. And maybe you're wondering, well, what in the world does this have to do with me? This pattern of living that we see in the book of Judges is really not much different than the way that we live today. Some of you have already been doing that work. You figured it out. I mean, think about it. You know, even as Christians, we sin. We disobey. I'm I'm as guilty as anyone of turning my back on God over and over again. I mean, my primary problem and your problem or primary problem is that we do not keep God at the center. I mean, we have difficulty in making sure that God is always the number one priority in life. And we put other gods before him. And when we do, that just allows the door to open and for all kinds of evil to creep in and take hold. I mean, we get steeped into our addictions. Um, our, our character and choices run wild. And then you've got the problem of anger and pride and pleasure. And we start chasing all the wrong things. I mean, things that we think will make us happy. Things like sex and and money and possessions and power. I mean, we put these before God. And that's why in the New Testament, John was able to write in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. I mean, we, we chase the wrong things. We, we get mixed up in all the wrong priorities and we mis, mistreat others. I mean, we sin. 
We disobey. And that sin and that disobedience leads in the same way as it did with the Israelites. I mean, the circumstances that come upon us and we're surrounded by those consequences and and the oppression that, that presses in on us. I mean, sin breaks our fellowship with God. And I want you to know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that it doesn't break our relationship with God. But sin breaks our fellowship with Him. I mean, it's kind of like this. I mean, it might surprise you, being that I'm a reverend and all, that uh, my children aren't perfect, all right? You know, I mean, as much as you might like to think or we'd like to try, they're not perfect. They're not ever going to get there um, because they mess up. And, And when they do, they don't lose their relationship with their daddy. I mean, they might run and hide and be really concerned about what they've done, but their relationship with me as their father is never at stake. I mean, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they hid from God. I mean, when we commit sin in our lives, the broken fellowship is more on us. It's more on me and what results on my side of things than it is on God. I mean, like it is with children and and their parents. I mean, think about it for you. Have you ever made a statement like this in your life? I just don't feel very close to God right now. Or you just feel so distant from me. I mean, I feel like there is such a gap between us. 1 John 1, 6 it says, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. John is basically saying, he said, don't, don't trick yourself into believing that everything's okay when everything's not okay. Don't lie to yourself. Don't deceive yourself in that. I mean, if things aren't going well in your life, if things aren't going you know, so hot in your relationship with Jesus Christ right now, I mean, it could be that you're spending more time choosing your way over God's way. I mean, have you been looking for your identity in something other than Jesus Christ? I mean, maybe you're spending more time walking in the darkness right now than you really think you are. I mean, just think about it. I mean, do some self-examination there. I mean, what's really going on in your heart right now? I mean, is it a, is it a healthy place or is it a tormented place? Uh, is your life one that's surrounded by thoughts of joy and love for life and love for others and God, or is it full of things like cynicism and criticism and anger and and fear? Are are you pursuing God and His will for you? Or are you, is this life all about what you want? Or is it about what He wants? I mean, some of you are here today and you would say, you know, I'm in a real mess financially right now. Or you're in a terrible place at work. Or you're in a relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend and it's just turbulent again. Or your marriage is a mess. I want to be careful in suggesting some of these things because the last thing that I want is to say that every problem in your life is your fault, you know, and at the same time, I, I'm certainly not saying that a walk with Jesus Christ is a guaranteed cakewalk for us. I mean, we've been looking at that verse that says, you know, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus promised that. And maybe for you, some of the circumstances and consequences of your life right now, I mean, maybe it's the result of the sin of someone else in your family or around you. I don't know. But like the Israelites, we're just as guilty of choosing our ways and our paths over God's. And we just fall into this trap. We believe this lie that God is holding out on us. And so we need to go find the life that we've always wanted. And so we sin and we disobey. And that sin leads to consequences. I mean, there are consequences for our choices. And when you hit rock bottom, I mean, how often do you just find yourself desperately looking for or craving a way out? We want things to change. I mean, we really ultimately desire freedom in our lives once again. The good news today is this one. 
that we serve a God who is willing to enter into the mess with us. He is a God that loves us and his heart is to forgive. And he loves you as you are and not as you should be. I mean, you know, love, not anger, sent Jesus Christ to the cross. You know, and the Bible talks about how Jesus Christ is our great shepherd and, and the shepherd will do all that he can to make sure that every single one of his sheep are accounted for and he's not going to rest until all of the sheep are safe at home again. What I want you to see today is that our beautiful and amazing God who continually offered a way out with forgiveness for the Israelites has provided a way out, a way back for you and me over and over again. He desires freedom and he desires forgiveness for his children. But here's the deal. There can be no real freedom. There can be no real forgiveness or restoration in your life without repentance. And repentance means confessing your sins to Him. It's acknowledging that you've turned your back on God, but that you are more than ready to turn back to Him again. And He promises that if we will turn to Him, He will keep taking us back over and over again. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And maybe that's just everything that you needed to hear today. That our God will always take you back over and over again. Because if you're here right now and you're stuck in a mess and you're overwhelmed by maybe some of the choices that you've made this past week or in this past month or in this year or in this latest season, and maybe you've bought into this lie that our God is going to give up on you or He's had it once and for all with you because you've messed up way too many times, the truth, the promise of Scripture is that our God will never grow tired of taking you back because He loves to forgive his children and his desire for you and me and every single one of us is forgiveness. And so if there is something in your life that seems too great, too horrible for our God to deal with, I'm telling you that there is nothing too great for our God. And there is nothing in your life that he can't overcome. But repentance is the key. And repentance means to turn back to him again. It means turning your heart back to God. And it begins when we feel the sorrow and the weight and the anguish for what we've done and how we've turned our backs on him, but then eagerly look forward to the grace and the love that is already awaiting us. Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, which is another way of saying freedom and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Hey, my question for you today is, do you need to turn your heart back to God? Have you wandered? I mean, we are prone, prone to wander. We are prone to turn our backs on God, but He is a God that loves to forgive and He loves to take us back. And why is it possible? I mean, how could it be possible that our loving God would take us back over and over again? It's all because of one judge, the ultimate judge, the final judge, Jesus. I mean, God sent His Son as our final judge and He sent Him to this earth at just the right time so that we could always find our way back to Him. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, but God demonstrates. He says, hey, you want an example for how I love you? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. As we bow our hearts today, I just want to remind you that our God loves to forgive. And it's not His choice to forgive, but it's who He is. And that's an important thing to remember, even as Christians, that when you know or 
Maybe today when you realize that you've turned your back on God and you've walked away, He will always be waiting to bring you back. And that might be everything you need right now for this moment. And so as we pray today with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want to ask you, do you feel like you've turned your back on God? You know, are you living in a pattern or a season of disobedience? Maybe you've been searching for your identity and significance in something other than God today. I want to remind you that He'd love to have you back. It is His desire for you and me that we live forgiven and in freedom. And maybe you need to come back to that place and that understanding in your life today that as a Christian, you know that you have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you've wandered. You've turned your back. But today is the day to turn your heart, to turn your eyes back on Him. I promise you that that's what He loves to do. He loves to lead us back. And Jesus has made the way possible so that we could find our way back to God. I just want to give you a moment to open your heart to Him, to turn your heart back to Him today. Maybe just pray those words, God, I've wandered. But I realize today what I've done. Please take me back. And you don't have to wonder, you don't have to be concerned, you don't have to question. Because the Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our God loves you as you are, not as you should be. He loves to forgive. His heart is to forgive. His love is to bring us back. I thank you, God. Thank you for those that are turning their hearts and their eyes back to you today. Oh, God, may they experience the joy of coming back, of the forgiveness that we have ultimately and forever in Jesus Christ, the freedom that you want for us in our life this afternoon and today and this week. God, we thank you. We thank you for that freedom made possible through Jesus. And as we pray, I've got to say this too, that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, well, I mean, this cycle up on the screen, it, it kind of works the same for you too. Because see, every one of us is guilty of sin and we're all guilty of walking our own path of choosing our own way. And maybe you're here this morning and you're tired of choosing your own way because it doesn't work. But God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to provide a way back so that we could have that relationship with Him, so that we could have salvation and we could have freedom. And it's through His love that He's offered this to you today. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you want to invite Him into your life today to change you forever, you can do that with your words. You can do that as you open up your heart right now. Just pray, God, I need Jesus in my life. I take Him as my Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins and give me a new life today in you. God, we thank you. I thank you for these prayers offered up to you today. I thank you, God, that you take me back over and over again. God, I pray that you would show us what repentance looks like as a Christian, as we walk with you each day, this discipline of confession and how it transforms our hearts more and more to understand your love, to change the way that we live and the way that we love you pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, 
Repentance is about turning back to God. And what is it that He truly desires for every single one of us? That our eyes and our heart will always be focused on Him. You know, there is a great verse in the Bible that I think every single one of us would do well to memorize and to make it our mission in everything that we do. It comes out of Hebrews chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything, you know, that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run the race with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice that phrase, what it means to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let's do that today. Will you stand with me as we close out, as we worship together with these songs, and just ask God, what does it mean for me today to fix my eyes on the one, my Savior, the prize, Jesus Christ?